You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Jake? I'm doing well, man. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. Good uh, good to chat with you here. Uh, today, we're going to talk uh, smallmouth bass. You're in uh, you know, a part of the country that's uh, popular, I think, for a lot of species. Smallmouth seems to be... Um, one of the things it's known for, but you've got steelhead and a bunch of other fish up there. Before we jump into that, let's take it into fly fishing really quick before we talk about Relentless, how you got into this business. Um, how'd you first get into fly fishing? What was your first memory? Um, I would say my first memory was probably, you know, fishing bluegills in a little bass pond. My dad had a uh, old South Bend fiberglass rod that I would take out every now and then, but really wasn't you know, I was just a, a fisherman in general. Um, fly fishing was kind of something as was more of like an option um, when I was younger. And then probably wasn't honestly until senior year of high school slash freshman year of college where I really kind of got more into it. And then um, was offered a job uh, as a deckhand and a fly fishing guide in Alaska. And that's kind of how I started into the the career side of it. And I would say that in the grand scheme of experience, I didn't have that much fly fishing experience, but my dad is a commercial fisherman. So I had a lot of fishing experience. And I think that's how I actually got the job was more my general fishing experience than my fly fishing. And then just kind of took that and ran with it once I realized how much fly fishing was just kind of spoke to me in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I never thought I'd be a professional, you know, quote unquote professional fisherman uh, in the conventional world or the the commercial world. But when I put a put a fly rod in my hand and started guiding clients, you know, on a professional level, I realized really quickly that this was something that that I could definitely, you know, kind of get into and 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 I just loved it. So that's kind of how it all started on that level was, you know, the people that you deal with in the fly fishing world are just a different breed than the sport world. And, and I just kind of vibe with them way better. So right on. Nice. And where, and where did you uh, grow up? Where were those first, uh, the, the first fishing you were doing? What state were you in? Uh, Maryland. So I grew up on the, uh, in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay on Ken Island. And uh, yeah, I mean, my first fish on a fly was a bluegill. And I think my second fish was a striper. So, hmm. you know, a lot of people don't really see me, well, I should say they don't really, not that they see me, but, um, you know, I've been getting a lot of publicity over bass, but stripers and saltwater has kind of always been one of my, my favorite things to target <laughs> with a fly rod. Yeah. 
So yeah, it sounds like, um, yeah, I mean, smallmouth bass, we, um, I think that was some of our listeners have reached out to me and said to get you on the show. I think it was for smallmouth, but talk about that. Why do you think you're known so much for smallmouth now and not some of the other species? Is it mainly the book you have out there now or what is that? Uh, I think the book definitely helped that for sure. But, you know, in all honesty, the last 12 years, 14 years, all I've really talked about is smallmouth bass and that's kind of been my passion. And so, you know, most people hire me to guide them for bass now. I think, you know, probably five or six years ago, it was, you know, still 50-50 trout versus bass. And within those five years, it went to, you know, 95 bass, 5% trout. So oh, wow. I, you know, I hardly guide for trout anymore. And and if I do, it's, you know, kind of more of the beginners and, you know, one or two anglers type of thing. And, and um, but, you know, I think it's really just because I, I talk about it so much and, and I love it. And, you know, I've, designed a few bass flies that are you know out there and so i think you know just over the years it's been you know kind of cultivated into my you know image or you know knowledge base or whatever you want to call it so right 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 that's awesome and and what do you think it is about smallmouth for you you know the difference between smallmouth and trout do you you know what's the big difference between the two or is, are there a lot more similarities there's a lot of similarities for sure actually you know i wrote an article for fly fisherman magazine last year um or maybe it was two years ago and it was literally trout tactics for smallmouth um that was the entire article so you know it was all about you know low water smallmouth and how those bass become very very like similar to spring creek trout and a lot of people don't think about that they're like oh they're just a bass and i'm like well yeah but they're a big water predator that also gets a lot of pressure so you know whether it's a bass or not it still can become very you know, weary of its surroundings and picky on what it eats. So yeah, that's it. Wow. That's cool. So yeah. So they can become kind of, I guess, trouty. Is that the word when they get to it where they're eating bugs and things like that little, uh, I mean, like what do they, I mean, are they taking some, uh, dry flies, some stuff that's really small bugs that are hatching off things like that? Oh yeah. I mean, you see them, you know, surface wise, you can see them eating something as big as a frog or all the way down to a size, you know, 24 trico, which is quite obnoxious. (laughs) The last thing I'm going to have is a trachea in my box. But, you know, I, I will say that even though they, they pick up and eat that stuff, if I were to throw, you know, a small black popper or something over them, they would probably still eat it. Although um, the other day we were fishing and there were some fish in the kind of mid, mid-teens range rising to what looked like, you know, kind of a summer sulfur or, you know, something along that yellowish size 16 range um fish don't know the latin name so i don't know the latin name i just know the size and the color (laughs) but uh you know so we put some we put a yellow popper over them they didn't eat it we put a you know different couple different foam bugs they didn't eat it and then i put on a a tan you know honestly like catskill style you know dry fly and they started smashing it so they were being pretty particular on that specific day which was kind of fun to figure out so, you know, extremely trouty on that sense. Right on. And uh, and just for people listening, uh, describe where you are now, where you guide, where your operation is. Yeah. So I am South Central Pennsylvania, mainly guiding the Junietta and the Susquehanna. I don't personally do a lot on the Susquehanna um, just because I like the Junietta better. And, you know, but we do do some of the tributary stuff in the, in the springtime. So our bass season is pretty much from late March all the way until you know, middle to end of October. So we've got a pretty long season 
And then we just change location due to conditions and flows and stuff like that. So I would say our base of operation is, you know, within, you know, an hour and a half, you know, circumference of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So. Gotcha. Yep. And right now we're kind of in the, we're coming up to September. It's, and then, you know, October's right around the corner. So, and then what happens towards the end of the season? Is it just a temperature thing or what's going on uh, when the things stop for, or why do you stop in October? Uh, mainly because the water temps drop pretty, pretty significantly. Um, and these fish become very, at least on a fly, they become very difficult to sometimes catch and find. Um, so, you know, when the water starts to drop, those fish will kind of leave their, what we call like summer haunts. Like, you know, in the summertime, you can just, you know, fish the banks or, you know, long stretches of the middle of the river. And those fish are kind of spread out and, you know, you're not going to catch one every cast, but they're in an area where when you're just continuously casting, you're going to bump into fish throughout the day. As we get into this fall period, these fish start to school up and migrate to deeper water. And so like there's a significant lull between between fish. But uh, with that lull normally comes like, you know, a spurt of activity or a flurry of activity because those fish start to school up and they're going to be kind of together. So where you might go an hour without a fish, when you find one, there's a good chance you're going to find multiples. But the other reason why we kind of stop is because steelhead season's right around the corner. And I would personally probably try to bass fish a lot more into November, but it takes a very special angler to go out there and just like, you know, get punched in the face all day <laughs> for a few fish. So, right. you know. Gotcha. That's it. So yeah, the steelhead. And that's something you still, do you still guide for steelhead out there? I do. Yeah. I, I guide in Erie. And so I've got two guys that guide in Erie with me. And then I've got one guy that does the salmon river up in, up in New York. So, oh, yeah. you know, we kind of transition towards end of October into the, the Great Lakes region. You know, I'm licensed in New York and Pennsylvania, as well as one of my other guides. And my third guide's about to get his New York license. So between the three of us, we, we kind of move from, you know, Pulaski all the way down to, to Erie, PA. So we're not on one specific system, which is kind of fun, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, the bass thing, just, it just kind of more opportunities and the, the fishing definitely slows up and, and, you know, the, you talk to certain guys that are gear fishermen and they're like, Oh, the fall, like October, November, December is awesome. I'm like, yeah, if you've got a tube jig and six pound tippet or six pound line that you can, you know, just sit on the bottom and you got a jet boat that you can just run to the holes, you know, they're right. in where, you know, drift boat fishing can be a little bit monotonous once you get into that later season. Today's episode is brought to you by Northern Rockies Adventures, premium fly fishing trips in the heart of the BC Rockies. Premium all-inclusive fishing packages from Vancouver, BC. Daily fly-in fishing trips to get you straight to the action. And the lodges offer private cabins and the utmost comfort. Learn more about this exclusive BC fishing trip at nradventures.com slash wetflyswing. You guys are floating it for the most part in drift boats for bass. Uh, yeah. So, um, springtime we run we run rafts most of the time in kind of the smaller water, and then you know June, July, August, September, you know time frame we're running drift boats. Um, I do have one guide that does some walkway stuff for bass, and and he's you know it's become very popular in the summertime. He's you know was mainly a a trout guide uh, and a steelhead guide and. When he started working for me full time, he's like, what should I do in the, you know, in the summertime? And I was like, well, you know, you can buy a drift boat or you can 
you know, just take people walk wading because, you know, he grew up in Perry County. He's knows every inch of all of the water in that area. And I'm like, just start doing that. And he's, he's become very popular. And so he stays pretty busy in the summer, you know, fishing smaller water. Um, and oftentimes it's, you know, you're not going to catch 20 inch bass every time you go, but you do have a chance at a couple, couple big fish and it's a lot of sight fishing on foot. And so again, talking about bass being very similar to trout, I mean, there's, when you're wade fishing low clear water for bass, you become, they become even more trouty and your presentation has to be more trouty. And so, you know, it can be technical at times and and he really loves that stuff. So. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. And the walk and wade stalking the fish. So let's talk about maybe how you would do a typical um, trip. Let's say we were coming up there and, you know, in September to fish with you, um, take us through a day. What, how does that look? Um, you know, like talk about how you catch bass there in your area. Yeah. So, um, you know, we typically, there's a small diner that we meet at and a lot of, a lot of people will, will beat me there and have breakfast because the food's, you know, kind of small town. Oh, nice. And what's that diner? What's, what's the name of that diner? So we don't miss it. It's uh Thompson town corner deli, uh, is the name of the diner, but so they've got ice cream in the summertime. They've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, no alcohol. It's just, you know, sweet tea, water, and soda. But their food's food's pretty good, and um, if you're taller than about six three, you got to be careful when you go to the bathroom. You might hit your head on the back <laughs> of the building. All but right. um, you know, so we meet there and we go shuttle the boat in the morning. We had a shuttle, but currently post COVID, we don't have a shuttle, so we use the client to help with that, and then dump the boat in, and hopefully in the first ten minutes we catch a bass on some form of popper or crayfish in the summer, and and then we kind of meander through the day and you know I, we have different different styles you know depending on what we're fishing if we're going to do a, if i know we're going to do a lot of cray fishing um i will pick a shorter float like about four miles and um kind of do what i call hole hopping or you know spot jumping and just kind of fish our way through but every time we get to a good spot where we can stop and anchor and and actually present crayfish you know for a half hour to an hour and hopefully catch a bunch of fish we'll kind of do that and then but if i know it's going to be more of a popper day or you know a streamer day bait fish we'll pick like an eight mile float and kind of just stick and move all day and and fish and move around and, and whatnot so the rivers you know the susquehanna itself is is pretty big so you know, you can spend a lot of time just going back and forth side to side because there are sections of it that are close to a mile wide. But, you know, the Junietta, I'd say on the widest is maybe a quarter mile, maybe a little bit less than that. And so, you know, we can bounce around side to side and, you know, mid river and stuff like that. So and then about halfway through the day, uh, I would have already asked you the night before, or a few days before what you particularly wanted for lunch. And hmm. I hand you a nice box lunch with some some snacks and a sandwich and we do that and then we fish until till we uh till we get tired that's it and the and the lunch options are a nice uh, i'm i'm guessing a, a good sandwich with uh what's that look like i'm just <laughs> I want to paint the picture cuz lunch is always a good one yeah um so typically you know one of the things uh i'm going to say sorry paul my old boss in alaska one of the things i brought away from alaska was how much a lunch can make or break your day and i will say my old boss wasn't the greatest at the lunch deal so um, when I started doing it, I, I, you know, I went through different, different phases. I used to bring a grill and, you know, make burgers, but I'm like, it's a hundred degrees in July. Who wants to be standing around a grill? So, um, now we do a, I send you an, a menu, um, and you get a choice between ham, turkey, roast beef, uh, roller wrap. And typically that, that wrap is going to be, 
you know, a spinach wrap or, you know, one of those more fancy ones. And then the buns are either a pretzel bun or an onion bun. And, um, and I do the ham and che- or, you know, meat and cheese on the sandwich. And then in a separate bag, we do lettuce and tomato and sometimes onion just so it doesn't get soggy. So it's kind of a deconstructed sandwich. And then you get apple or orange chips or popcorn, nature Valley or, kind bar and then we do um some brownies or some cookies you know so it's a it's a pretty pretty deal and maybe some coffee or some drinks on the side yeah and then we'll do you know i'll have water and gatorade and you know i don't provide alcohol but um my boat is not an alcohol free boat so you know i've got some guys that bring like a manhattan and a flask or you know a couple beers and we'll pull over and have a have a drink at, at lunch as well but that's it. Yeah. It seems like most people from my experience in these guide trips, as we've been getting into them that, you know, most people, even if they like drinking, it's never a priority because right. The priority is to be on the water and you don't want to, you know, ruin your day. So I always feel like alcohol is never an issue. Is that kind of how it looks for you? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think that most guys, even some of my, some of my good clients that I know can, you know, stay up till four in the morning and party they're like you know when we're on a boat we're here to fish and you know even us guides like you you go through phases sometimes you're like oh, i'm gonna bring a few and and you know maybe just periodically drink but you know it, but at the end of the day there's still all of the beer in the cooler and you're out there fishing so um yeah fishing is definitely the the main priority uh on that sense i heard something i can't remember who it was we were talking to somebody talking about the guides but he, I think he wrote something about the guides, uh, whatever you call it, this dilemma that some guides get into where they start to, it's almost like the party atmosphere, right? They start getting into this, uh, and, and maybe it's not in your neck of the woods, but some of these areas where it's this guide atmosphere, where there's lots of drinking, smoking, all sorts of stuff. And you see people sometimes go off the deep end. Is that something that you've ever seen out there and kind of with the guides, is that something you ever had to deal with? Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, I would say that like, I mean, I've had a couple of clients that have probably you know, drank a little too much. And, you know, the guides, I think most of the guides are pretty good on that sense. I mean, you know, post, post guiding, I've definitely seen some guys show up, you know, the next morning with a bottle of Pedialyte or something. And right. I just look at them and it's like, really? Uh, I feel like you probably should have done that. And they're like, oh, it'll be fine. But I've never seen any, at least of my guides, um, get to the point where they were like, I can't guide because I'm hungover or something like that, you know, or hinder their day because of it. So, um, I mean, in all honesty, we've all done it. I yep. mean, I could tell you, I could tell you a very embarrassing story about me falling out of my own boat when I was oh, wow. younger. <laughs> we'll save that one for the end. We'll save that one for yeah. the end. I personally have a rule that I don't drink the night before a guide trip anymore. And unless it's a good client that I've fished, you know, a lot of days, I won't even drink even share an alcohol beverage with them. So, um, but no, I mean, most, most of us are, are pretty good about it out here anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Well, and just so people know, I'm sure everybody's aware of it. There's, I've actually been getting into some of these like non-alcoholic beers, um, just to mix things up and man, there's some really good, like high quality stuff. See, I'm not sure if that's changed over the years, but so for those that want to, uh, that still love the taste, but don't want the alcohol, there are some good options out there. Oh yeah. There's, um, what is there's one called athletic i think it yeah is. exactly athletic yep yeah that one's pretty good i remember i had a client bring me one he's like here try one of these it's a non-alcoholic ipa and i was like there's no alcohol in this i like, know it tastes just like a real one i'm gonna give a shout out just because i've got this this is a really good one for those listening is um uh what is it called i think it's called migration ale 
they got a citrus hazy IPA and, uh, and that's really awesome as well. I think I'm not sure where they're out of, but yeah, there's a bunch. So, um, so, and they're not a sponsor of this podcast, but, uh, but I think, no, it's, this is good stuff. Um, so we got the, we got the good, we've taken care of the beer, uh, conversation here. Um, I want to go back. You mentioned crayfish. So when you're coming up for the day, are you asking your clients, you know, what do you kind of want to focus on? Or is it just depending on what's going on? Like when you choose crayfish versus poppers versus streamers? Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of condition what's going on. I mean, you know, one of the things that's super cool about crayfish is that in our water, they're just so, so predominant that, you know, they are, they are a main food source pretty much all summer long. Um, you know, and one thing I've learned over the years, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's like any secret, but the big bass in the springtime are very aggressive because they're kind of coming out of that, you know, wintertime zombie-like stage where they're not eating much and their metabolism starting to spike and they're moving into some of these smaller creeks to migrate and they're just getting very aggressive. And so, you know, springtime is really fun because you can throw, you know, six, seven, eight inch flies for bass and move them really fast. And those fish are going to be aggressive. But once you hit that kind of July, August, September timeframe, there is so much food in the water, whether it be crayfish, bugs, minnows, you know, helgramites, nymphs, all kinds of stuff. Those fish become very particular on what they're going to eat and how much energy they use to eat that food. And so the one thing that I've found is that summertime, if you throw a bait fish pattern and you're burning it across, you know, the water, you're going to catch some fish, but they're typically going to be smaller. But when you slow your presentation down and you start, you know, crawling a crayfish on the bottom and and making that easy for those fish to eat, you know, those bigger fish are pretty easy to not, well, they're never easy, but they're, they're easier to entice into eating. And that's the same with the popper. You know, we do a lot of like no popping, you know, just free floating a popper, you know, almost dead drifting a popper. And so, slowing those presentations down is what I think creates a bigger interest in those larger fish to eat. And so summertime, typically you've got two options, popper or crayfish. And that's kind of how I, how I run my program and, you know, not, not necessarily crayfish in general, but like some sort of bottom dwelling food, whether it be a helgramite or a stone cat or, you know, a leech or something like that, but, you know, keeping yourself low and slow is where you're going to catch most of your fish. And so typically July through you know, now is when I'm going to run crayfish or poppers. And those are kind of the two options. But when you start to get into that October range, the crayfish start to, you know, kind of burrow underneath the, underneath the rocks and in the mud and they become very less active. The bug life is gone. Um, and all of a sudden the only thing left is minnows. And so, you know, these fish will start to go back on that minnow bite kind of early to mid October. And so you can start fishing, you know, bigger stuff or at least bait fish imitations once they start to get more aggressive. So I just think summertime is a crayfish popper type of season. And that's where I start and end my day. Stonefly Nets is always focused on quality over quantity. And right now you can find out what a high quality handcrafted net is all about. Ethan runs his shop in the Ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wood landing nets you'll see on the market. I've been using the stonefly nets for quite some time now, and every time I land a fish, I find myself enjoying the net as much as I enjoy looking at that fish. 
You can select from four sizes and many different options, including uh, choosing the handle, the loop, and the different types of burls that you put in there. For Ethan, fly fishing has always been a great memory that was created on a morning. He was casting that three-weight bamboo rod that was passed down for generations. And Ethan is right now helping us create these same lasting memories every time we're on the water. Check out these custom classic wood nets right now if you head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y, to get started right now. Okay, back to the show. Let's talk about the crayfish a little bit. Maybe describe kind of the gear you're using, how you're setting up, and how you're fishing for them. Is this all sight fishing, or how does this look? Uh, there is a lot of sight fishing and honestly, sight fishing crayfish is pretty awesome. It's very flat style bonefish permit, you know, where you're, you're getting a little bit of a lead, but not too far. And you're, you know, just slowly presenting that and watching the fish eat. And, you know, whether it's a crayfish or a popper, that visual eat is, in my opinion, there's nothing that really matches that. But crayfishing has evolved for me in the last couple of years a lot. I used to fish sinking lines, heavy sinking lines, medium, large lead eyes to get down there thinking that, oh, you got to get down and stay down. And I realized that I probably spent more time tying crayfish than I actually did fishing them because I lost them all. (laughs) So what I've started to do in the past like two and a half to three seasons has been floating lines with slightly longer floral leaders and a lighter crayfish. So instead of fishing a medium lead eye, I'm fishing small or extra small uh, lead eyes and also moving into kind of some of that tungsten stuff. And so I really like fishing like a either 118 or 18 or whatever, 530 seconds, whatever's right underneath of that. Um, so smaller tungsten beads and getting those flies to get on the bottom but not necessarily get hung up. And so you get way more ability to manage your presentation with a floating line. So just like pre-indicator fishing, you know, you're using the tip of your fly line as your indicator and, you know, having fly line on the surface versus subsurface makes you be able to mend it more or throw a little bit of slack in there, um, whether you're mending upstream or downstream to kind of slow that presentation down and almost get a spin fishing you know, kind of tube jig style presentation. Cause I found that it's not so much the fly. I mean, I've let me back up for a second. I have some guys that, that fish with me that are spin guys and, you know, they fish a lot of tube jigs and a lot of Ned rigs and, you know, just that kind of bottom bouncing rubber bait. And, you know, when the Ned rig came out, every, all these fly tires were like, Ooh, I need to tie a Ned fly. And my mentality was, I don't think it's necessarily the bait itself. It's how that bait is presented and how it's staying on the bottom and you can manipulate how fast or slow that presentation is and it stays in front of the bass longer. They fall relatively slow because they're rubber and they've got some air pockets in them. So that fall, that slower fall is huge because that bass can see that thing coming down to hit the bottom. And so I found my mentality was, well, how do we just fish the flies that we know work really well the same way? And that's where the floating line longer leader came from for me. And it's something I actually tried probably five or six winters ago when my buddies were 
crushing them on tube jigs and i was out there with a fascinating line trying to catch a fish right. you know in 35 degree water and i couldn't do it so i was like the next time i went out i took a 16 foot leader which was horrendous to cast and a heavy fly and realized that that was the first time i tried to do it and it worked and so now we run slightly thinner leaders so you don't have as much drag on the, the section of line that's under the surface and then you've, you know, you got a longer leader, so it also doesn't pull that floating line down. So you've got to pay attention to the amount of line you have between the fly and the and the floating line. And so you can kind of keep yourself a lot slower. So it's it is a very difficult way to I think to kind of fish for those smallmouth. But once you catch a couple that way, the feeling and the the visual recognition of what that tip of that fly line does. Um, I mean, I've taught a lot of people this year how to do it with great success and everybody's like oh my gosh like we didn't lose a single crayfish today and i was like yeah pretty awesome right 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 um so that's my deal i mean i love the crayfish game so yeah describe that again that tip of the fly line how you how you use that to your advantage so you know it's it gives you something to look at and typically what i do is is when i put my mend in as soon as that fly hits water i try to keep a small little you know, kind of little, I call it a J um, or a little belly anywhere from six inches to two feet. And that's pointed upstream. And then the rest of your line is kind of pulling it down. So you can still kind of mend it and slow it down, but you keep that little J in there. And anytime that fly line does anything but float freely, whether it starts to, you know, dip down a little bit or, you know, jolt. My favorite is when the tip of the fly line actually starts swimming downstream faster than your fly line. Right. Because it just grabs it and starts going down. Um, but I'm just using that as a visual recognition. And, and bass, when they eat a crayfish, they're not swimming through it. And so it is a very soft eat initially. And so I tell everybody, look, if it does anything, you know, set on it because it might feel like a rock it might look like a rock but you know that fish is just coming up behind in it and sucking it in or pinning it to the bottom so there's not a lot of movement until you make the movement hmm. what's the set look like for those fish when you see that little subtle thing um it's kind of a, a hybrid you know a hybrid strip set slash you know trout set where you're kind of stripping and lifting the rod slowly but it's not a, a crazy like you know say tarpon set where you're, yeah, right. you're giving it all you can you got but because a lot of times if it is a rock so it's kind of more of like a well i kind of call it like a prospecting hook set where like <laughs> you set it where you get enough pressure to know that it's either a rock or a fish and then you give it a second set all right because a lot of times if it's not a fish when you set if it's about to get stuck on a rock because that fly is so light, it just pops over the rock and then you can continue your drift. Where if you like do a full trout set, strip set, giant, you know, thing, you got to reset and do it all over again. So sometimes you can save your drift. Gotcha. Save your drift. Cool. And then in that little J thing you're talking about. So if you were, if you were kind of looking downstream river, you know, float the rivers, I guess you're standing on the bank river, right? The river's flowing from left to right. Um, you cast like if you saw a fish i guess one opportunity would be you see a fish you make that cast and then you put a little upstream mend in it is that the j is that what you're talking about yep i'm gonna put a little a little upstream mend in it but i'm not gonna put a huge upstream mend because if i traditionally do an upstream mend like i was indicator fishing or something where i want to get that whole you know fly line leader above the fly then it's going to take a lot longer and for that that fish has got to hold on to that fly a lot longer for me to know it's there where if i keep that little j in there it's keeping tension but you also have a freedom to mend multiple times without 
you know, moving the fly too much. The other thing that is really good is if you do do micro mends, every time you micro mend, that fly is just going to lift up a little bit and drop back down, lift up and drop back down. And it's going to kind of look like a tumbling. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so you could be fishing this on the little, there could be a little current there or whatever. And you're kind of, it's kind of fishing down. How's that look? Are you typically casting up, out, down? How are you doing that when you're not necessarily fishing, you know, a pool or something like that? I always cast slightly upstream just to give yourself a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of an angle. And again, it's like a, a fine line between having, you know, enough tension to feel it and too much tension where you're, you know, dragging it, you know, through the current faster than those fish want to eat it. So I always tend to cast upstream just a little bit. Um, If we're fishing and floating, like if the anchor's up and we're not fishing an actual pool, um, it's more of a straight across or slightly downstream. And then it's just a very slow kind of constant pull. And, and, you know, when I tell people, well, I should say a lot of people ask me how long of a pull. And if they're right-handed, they normally have the rod, you know, hanging off the right side of their body somewhere around pocket length. And so I say, you know, about the length till you touch your other pocket. So, you know, 12 to 18 inches and then just constant, you know, because every time you go to grab more line, that fly pause for a second. And so you don't want to burn it real fast, but it's just kind of a steady, consistent movement. And, and you can slow that down if you want. And the number one thing again, is watching the tip of that fly line. If that, the tip of that fly line starts to get, you know, pulled upstream way more than, it isn't, then you might want to speed it up just a little bit. And so like, again, paying attention to that tip of that line to manage the speed of your retrieve is very important. Um, But with a lighter fly, you have a much wider berth, you know, to not get stuck. So you have a a bigger, more room for error. Exactly. More room for error. Exactly. That's it. So you have this fly and that's what you've learned is, yeah, the little bit lighter going lighter, it gives you more action and decreases the, you know, getting snagged up, which is great. And then talk about the flies a little bit. You've got, it sounds like you got a few of your own flies. Describe maybe something you would fish for um, the, you know, crayfish here and some of the flat patterns you have. I would say the most recent crayfish that I have is, um, it's not overly complicated to tie, but one thing that I have noticed and I think is very important is the size of the claws of a crayfish. And so all of my claws are tied with pine squirrel zonker instead of rabbit because our native crayfish actually have pretty small claws where our invasives have really big, like the rusty crayfish, the claws are basically the same size as the, the whole crayfish. So I'm always looking at what's easier for a bass to eat small claws or big claws and so small claws are very important um i do add some foam to the back of it you know i know guys like you know blaine chocolate and you know some of these other guys that have really you know kind of innovated the the whole world with the game changer platform like he has a lot of foam on the back of his stuff but he's trying to get that you know vertical stand like a ned rig and i just add a little bit of foam to keep that hook point up just a little bit. So it's not it's not like I'm trying to keep it vertical. I don't put foam on the claws because the purchase area of a pine squirrel zonker versus a rabbit zonker is significantly smaller and it just falls off. So I add a little bit to the to the back of the hook shank and then I just do a single articulation. So I use my primary, you know, summertime crayfish as a size 4 a-Rex light stinger. So it's not super, super 
uh, long. It's not really big. It's actually a lighter wire hook. And I like lighter wire because it bends out a little easier if you do get stuck and you can bend it back multiple times, which is kind of nice. So I would say I've bent, I've had them bend out multiple times to get a flyback and I've bent them three, four or five times and oh, haven't cool. had one break yet. So, nice. um, so that lighter wire is nice. It also creates easier penetration into that fish's mouth. And then a single 15 millimeter, 60 degree jig shank from spawn fly fishing. Those things are, are awesome. And I actually really like the spawn football tungsten beads that he has. I use those a lot. I think they don't get stuck as much because they've got just a little bit different profile. So it kind of creates that width, which is kind of nice. And so, um, and then I do one thing that I have not seen much of. Personally, I've never seen it. So I'm sure somebody's done it before me, but I take rabbit and I actually cut it off of the zonker strip off the hide and reverse tie it over the back of the crayfish. And that gives me kind of that carapace or that shell back gives me the ability to flare it out and it just creates a really nice profile. And then one of the most important factors of all crayfish is rubber legs. Smallmouth love rubber legs. So I do, um, so I do eight on each side. So I have 16 legs on it. So it's almost, um, but they're not long. I cut them short. They never go past the, the actual claw length. So, you know, it's not like it's just this giant, skirt of rubber it's they're strategically placed on there so um that's one of my main my main crayfish and then i do use like blaine's changer crawl a lot especially in the spring and um, but i think smaller is better in the summertime and then i also have a, a stone cat or a mad tom or you know a baby catfish pattern that's tied very similar it could be sculpin but i do add whiskers off the front so it's officially a, a catfish imitation and then just a couple different leech patterns. You know, Mike Schultz's, you know, red-eyed leech is really good. I do make them also lighter. I, try, You know, I have some heavy stuff for the wintertime, but summertime stuff, I try not to go any more than a small, you know, lead eye. And then a buddy of mine's got this goofy little, again, Spawn has those micro, like, dragon tails. Um, I forget what he calls them, but he basically ties this little leechy-looking thing. It kind of looks like a Helcomiter leech, and that works works really well, too. So, um, I would say on average, my summertime subsurface stuff is no more than three inches. I think that's one of the most important parts. So, right. So that's it. So you're using summer, using smaller stuff. And then, like you said, spring, you can go big or later in the season, you can go back to some of the bigger stuff. Is that like when you're in October, could you go to some of those seven, eight inch uh, flies? You definitely can. And I think that, you know, it's all condition oriented, you know, like right now we've just, we had rain for the past three days and so that water's coming up a little bit and, and it's creating that kind of cover which is nice so even if those fish are eating primarily minnows or bigger bait fish and when the water's low and clear you still have an issue with you know spooking those fish and so you know i always tell people it's more important to be able to get your fly in front of the fish to present it to them versus actually matching that exact bug so all yes right. we all want to throw big stuff but if the water doesn't give us the ability to throw big stuff. We have to keep throwing small stuff. But, you know, one of my favorite flies for the springtime when it's still cold is is Russ Madden's uh, Circus Pino. Oh, yeah. You know, that fly has caught some of the biggest fish, you know, of the season. And I actually have inverted them sometimes where I want the hooks to ride up. Basically because I've learned over the past probably 10 years is that typically we – our hooks become blunt 
before we lose them because there's so many rocks in our system. So being able to protect those, those hooks is really important. So I've inverted them, you know, a lot of times to do that, but that fly is just a killer. I mean, you just change the color of it, you know, and it can be just about anything. So, you know, moving into the fall, you know, I'll fish a lot of that stuff as well. So kind of a, a double hooked, you know, some sort of weighted bug on subsurface and, and roll with that. But the bait fish stuff is also awesome. You know, I love fishing articulated minnow patterns and things like that. So, yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, like you said, I mean, a lot of this stuff works, including flies, like we said at the start, but like you're saying, so what were the patterns? Do you have a, a couple of name patterns we might look at that are out there? Um, or maybe you've mentioned them already. For bait fish or for crayfish and stuff? Uh, for either either one, yeah, crayfish or whatever you have there. Um, the one bait fish that I have is called the Romer. That's one of my signature flies. You know, I tie it from a size two all the way up to a double hooks with a shank, so a, a triple, if you will, or a single like two aught. You know, that's kind of one of my favorite fall sizes. It's about five and a half to six inches. Um, so super light to, to cast, you know, kind of gives you that kind of fluky, you know, gliding side to side motion and my crayfish and Helgramite patterns, they're not available to purchase yet. Um, but I did just sign a contract with Montana fly company. And oh, cool. so I'll have about eight patterns with those guys, but my YouTube channel, which is relentless TV does have some of that stuff already on it. A lot of these patterns are also in my recent book that I published smallmouth bass flies top to bottom. So, you know, there's at least ways to tie them or there's literature to tie that stuff. And if I can get my act together, I will be doing a lot more tying videos through the winter time um, and hopefully continue those through the season, you know, moving forward. So perfect. Perfectly awesome. Yeah. We'll put some links to this in the show notes, uh, your relentless uh, TV channel and, uh, and your book as well. We'll have links to that so everybody can take a look and go deeper and then you mentioned Montana Fly Company. We recently, um, we have an episode that came out and we talked about the history of that company, which is pretty cool. So this is good. So I think we have a good feel. So let's take it back to the river. So you're sitting there, you're targeting um, that fish. It's sight, you know, you see it. Talk about maybe the water, set this up, and then how you get that fish to take. I'll do two different scenarios. So we'll do a topwater scenario and a, and a subsurface scenario. So one thing that I've, I've argued with so many cl- clients <laughs> and friends about is that you know, when you see a fish on a flat and you're fishing a popper or, you know, some sort of terrestrial, a lot of people want to go into that trout mentality of, oh, we got to cast it, you know, 20 feet above it and present it slowly down to it and, you know, twitch it at the right moment. And I've noticed that 100% of the time when you do that, that fish doesn't eat it. For whatever reason, I have found that if you put that fly within a foot or two of that fish's, you know, face, or just general area, as long as it's not, you know, behind them, that plop sound will get their attention. And then you play this kind of cat and mouse game with them where you're, you know, you might twitch it once to get their attention or, you know, might not do anything with it. And I say, you know, you got 50% chance that you're going to spook that fish when you drop it on its head, but you also have a 50% chance that it's going to eat it versus 0% chance if you present it the other way. So I always go with 50% is better than zero. And then you've got to read that fish just like a trout. I mean, there are plenty of times where those fish will come up and they'll stare at it for 10 seconds before they eat it. And so you have to not move it because they're interested in it. And sometimes if you twitch it, that'll spook them. I'd always tell people not to touch that popper or that, you know, terrestrial 
until that fish loses interest. Where it's as soon as that fish's head starts to go back down, twitch it. And it's either going to spin around and grab it or it's going to keep going down. But sometimes I think they look at it to inspect that it's alive and then they eat it. And that's where, you know, the rubber legs of a popper or rubber legs of a terrestrial is nice because it creates motion even when you're not doing anything. So reading that fish's attitude is the most important thing. Sometimes as soon as that thing hits the water, they come up and smash it. Other times it's a, you know, a long drawn out process that's quite maddening as a guide to watch that fish like think about it, but not eat it. And sometimes color is a huge thing. You know, if, you know, you're fishing a bigger popper or a bigger grasshopper, or something like that, that's in that tan or, you know, white or yellow color range, those colors and sizes often indicate a bug that's not going to leave the surface very easy. So that fish has plenty of time to inspect it. Where if you start to see a lot of fish looking and not committing, you know, think about some of their other food on the surface that they are a lot faster to, you know, commit to like a damselfly or dragonfly because damselflies and dragonflies never actually touch the water unless they're riding on a piece of grass or something like that. And so when a fish fish on damselflies, you switch to something that might be a little smaller and blue, you're going to see a pretty significant difference in commitment rate and speed because those fish have to commit to eating that fly before it gets close enough for them to inspect it because they know it won't be there <laughs> very long. And that's why if you, you know, middle of summer, you look downstream, you see bass jumping out of the water. They're trying to eat damselflies mid-flight, which is kind of fun. So God, that's great. Yeah. So as a guide, you kind of look at those things, or even if there's not that many damselflies, but those fish are being very picky and, and not very committal, you know, throw something smaller and blue or small and olive on. And there's a good chance you're going to see a difference in commitment on those fish, which is kind of fun. So, and then backing up to the crayfish or kind of that subsurface bottom dwelling thing, that is one where I do want to get it a little further away because it is, it does have weight on it. So that initial plop sometimes can be too much for those fish, where if you can get it on the bottom, you know, quietly and then kind of swing it in front of them or pop it right when you get close to them. You know, we were, we had an amazing crayfish day uh, on Friday. We had good clarity. We had good sun. And we were watching fish move like sometimes six to 10 feet to eat a crayfish. Wow. And I haven't seen that aggression towards a crayfish all summer. So you can definitely tell the water temps are getting cooler and those fish are like getting a little bit more active. But you get it in the water in front of those fish and you kind of create that speed that you need and bounce it, tumble it through the rocks on the bottom. And when you get close enough to those fish, you know, it is also sometimes a cat and mouse game where like, you know, you got to mend it once to pop it and that fish runs over and stares at it. And then you twitch it one more time and, you know, they're looking at it again and you twitch it one more time. They look at it and then you give it like a three or four inch pull where it looks like it's going to get away. And that's typically when they pounce on it and grab it when they're like, look, 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 oh boy, it's going away. And then they grab it. So, so you definitely want to run the crayfish a little further away and make sure it's on the bottom as drag free as possible so that you can manipulate it how you need to. Again, reading that fish's reaction and reading that fish's attitude and kind of play that game of cat and mouse with those, those fish. So that stuff gets me super excited when I get to see that. That's awesome. Yeah. The cat and mouse sounds like fun. So you you're kind of, yeah, you're just keeping it engaged. And then as soon as then you do that longer strip to let them know, hey, I'm out of here, then they attack it. Yep. Then they oftentimes will jump on pretty, pretty quick. So nice. 
How do you, as you're going down, or I'm, are you guys floating? I mean, I know you obviously know the water, but if somebody's new to an area, how would you find the fish? Are they kind of, like you said, some, I guess during the right season, they're scattered all over the place, but do you find that it's hard to find the fish at any times? Uh, yeah. I mean, definitely like as we get in, you know, early season. So I shouldn't say early season. I should say kind of early summer. We do some years this year was a little bit different, have that kind of like post spawn you know, lull where those fish are kind of moving around, but they're not super, super aggressive yet. And they're not really set up. And so, you know, June is typically when that happens and it can be a hard experience as a guide. I'm like, feel like I'm beating my head against a wall, um, trying to find them. And then in, in the fall, when those fish start to move and, you know, school up and, you know, get into some of these deeper holes, just finding those holes. I mean, you've, there's always like, you know, that textbook hole where it's deep, it's slow, a lot of rock. Typically there's going to be fish there, but you know, sometimes there isn't. And so finding the place that those fish are. And the other thing that's interesting this time of year is that they're not always there. They move around a lot. And so like you could have a school of fish in one pool on a Monday and by Wednesday, there's zero fish in there because they sat there for a while and we're like, nah, this isn't where we want to be. And they move somewhere else. And so I would say you know, June and then October are kind of hard to find fish. But if you're new to the area or you're getting that, you know, you're, you're floating on the river and you've never done it. I mean, the, the best thing to do is start on the banks, you know, and kind of just see where those fish are. Once you start finding them, you know, and looking for wood, looking for slow, slow eddies, rocks, deeper pools. I mean, depth is, is all relative where, you know, you could be in a section of river where it's, you know, a foot deep, but then there's a two foot deep hole, you know, on the bank or something where it doesn't look that much deeper, but that's enough for those fish to get over. Cause summertime, as much as wood, rock, grass, you know, and overhanging trees are, are cover, bass also find cover in depth. So right. the deeper the water, the more likely those fish are going to be, you know, eating. So, you know, I always tell people start on the banks. The other thing that's really, I think, important, and even if it's not a good fishing day, is fish the river or float the river when it's low and clear because then you can really see where a lot of those holes are and then just know that when the water comes up in, in depth, those holes are still there. You know, they might be a little bit bigger as we get more volume, but, you know, there's always going to be that spot no matter what the flow is. So learning the depth game is important and and then it's just time, you know, I mean, I've been I'm 37 and I've been floating these rivers for almost 15 years and I'm still finding new spots in floats that I've done hundreds of times. <laughs> and so you're never truly done learning, which is part of what's fun about it. Yeah. And are there, and are those streams, I guess we've been, I've been thinking about the, the Junietta, is that one that changes a lot over the winter with high flows and things like that? Um, not really, which is kind of nice about it. You know, there's the only thing that really changes, uh, you know, typically trees falling in the water, right, or log jams being blown out that, you know, for instance, there was a spot that was kind of a guarantee every time you went there, there was a nice log jam below this spot. So you kind of had this reverse, you know, reverse current and those fish would sit like right on the transition of that reverse current. And then that log jam got blown out last winter and it actually created this like half mile like edge where there's all this wood and you know lower current flow but like still this like nice little trough in there because like the water all of a sudden like all that silt got pushed out and so 
you know, in some ways it actually made it better. And instead of having one hole, now you have a half a mile of fishable water. And so it does change a little bit, but, you know, typically the big pools, the mid river stuff, you know, eddies that are built, you know, are made from, you know, natural rock formation and stuff like that stuff doesn't change very often, but, you know, just like anything, you will get, you know, certain spots, the silt will start to fill in and you'll, you'll lose depth. So, there are minute changes that take place, but I haven't gotten to a, a section of river in the spring and been like, whoa, this is like completely changed. So, And it sounds like, you know, with your dry lines and the, the long fluoro, I mean, are you using any sink tips at all or is that pretty much of you, is it all dry now? I do fish, the the most that I will fish is an intermediate line, you know, and, and that's typically fall and spring, uh, unless we have, you know, a high summer, but most of the time I'm fishing those intermediate lines with a fly that I have to, you know, swim back or, you know, manipulate a lot faster. And so it seems like spring and fall seem to be when I use that the most, but typically I like to only use an intermediate line to kind of break the surface tension, get it down a little bit. And then if I need to get deeper, I just change flies. And so a lot of times I'll tie, let's use the circus peanut as an example I might have a dozen circus peanuts or two dozen circus peanuts in different varying colors, but I might have three different weights on them where I might have two tungsten beads or a medium eye or a small eye. And so depending on the depth that I need to fish, I can change that fly and get heavier or lighter. And so you don't have that. I found with sinking lines, especially fast sinking lines, you have a very aggressive you know, kind of J taper to them and a lot of slack. And so those fish need to hold on to those flies a lot longer for you to feel them because they have to pull, you know, you have to separate yourself and they have to separate themselves from you to pull up all that slack where an intermediate line is going to give you a really good, you know, kind of taper down. The one thing that I will say is that like Scientific Angler makes some amazing triple density lines now. So you can kind of manage that angle and that connection you know, by having a fly line that has three different sink rates to it. And so I really like if I do ever go deeper and it's SA has a, what they call a hover, which is like a half inch to an intermediate, which is an inch and a half to a type three, or it's a type two. I can't remember. I have it down in the basement, but it's just a little bit deeper, you know, or faster sinking than an intermediate line. But because it's tapered on that that different sink rate, you still have that really nice angle between you and your fly. And so I really like that stuff. You know, we do do a tiny bit of musky fishing. I do not guide for them, but personally musky fish that triple density line, you know, in the like intermediate type three, type five, or intermediate type five, type seven is awesome for musky because it gets that fly down. And typically we're fishing more buoyant flies for musky. So you do need that fast sinking line. But again, you know, if you're casting 50, 60 feet and a muskie eats right on the bank, if you've got, you know, this giant belly of fast sinking fly line, you're not going to stay connected well enough to that fish. And so, you know, changing those fly lines just to give yourself a little bit different, you know, depth and, but you still have that pretty aggressive angle, you know, that keeps you connected. So you kind of want that straight line from your fly to your the tip of your fly rod and if you have a fast sinking line you end up with this kind of j shape or this u shape and i've always found that you lose a lot more fish that way and people are like oh i miss them and i'm like well you probably actually never had that fish that fish spitting as you felt that fish eat so you know fly lines can be a pretty awesome thing to mess around with but i like to try to keep it simple 
Keep it simple. I like that. And and how do you know when you're down? How do you know when you're at the right level with your fly to the fish? How do you know when you're either on the bottom or, or near it when you're fishing if you can't see it? If you can't see it, typically you can feel it. And that's one thing that's super nice about the tungsten beads is, you know, tungsten is a, a denser material. And so it's a little bit more aggressive as a feeling where lead is super soft. So like you can't feel lead bouncing on the bottom quite as well as you can with tungsten. And I was actually talking to a buddy of mine that works for Schultz up there in Michigan, and he does a lot of carp fishing. We were talking about these uh, tungsten dumbbell eyes that they have now. Um, and he's like, dude, it's amazing for carp fishing because you get the super small. And he's like, I can feel that thing touch a stick. Now. Oh, wow. And that's one of the nice things about the floral, the floral leaders as well. You talk about something that's a little bit more rigid, right? So tungsten beads are more dense. So you can feel that vibration a little bit better. And then fluoro doesn't stretch as much as, as mono. And so you can feel that through that, that floral a little bit better. And, and if you can't feel it, even then you're looking at, you know, kind of the speed at which your fly line is floating. Um, and again, keeping that little kind of J or that small upstream or up current indicator will show you whether or not you know, it's slowing up every once in a while, ticking the bottom, or if it's just ripping across the surface, you're not down deep enough. So, yeah, gotcha. Uh, when you're out there, is there a way to find, um, you know, kind of find some of those bigger fish or, you know, how does that look when you're out there? I mean, typically in the summertime when I'm with all my big fish days, I, I find them. I mean, I see them first. And one thing I've noticed with, with some of these fish, and I don't know how it is in a lot of other places, but at least where we are, is that when you find a dark fish that's in shallow water, that fish is ready to eat. If you find a lighter fish, that fish is, you know, probably 20, 30% going to eat. And I think part of that is because that darker fish, and I could be totally making this up, but this <laughs> is something I've noticed is that those darker fish typically, I think, are actually sitting up there on in like sucking in that sunlight and rising their metabolism a little bit. And when they raise their metabolism, they're sitting in that sunlight and sucking all that sunlight up. The darker they are, the longer they've been in the sun, which typically means that those fish are going to like eat soon. And that's a theory that I have. But um, if I can't see them, you know, I'm kind of looking for, you know, kind of softer water on the edges or, you know, knowing that, you know, there's a lot of sticks over here. Finding, finding water and structure subsurface is huge. I found that a lot of bigger fish really like that sandy woody area. And so if I can find like sand and wood, or at least know where that stuff is when the water's a little higher, you've got a pretty, pretty good chance of finding a fish, you know, in that area, but it's, you know, it's never a guarantee, but that softer, slower water is typically yeah. where you're going to find those bigger fish. If you can't see them. If you can't see them. And, but you try to, as you're, as you're floating down, you're always looking for fish, trying to find the big fish or whatever, find fish as you're spotting them. You can typically see them, you know, in the summertime when the water's clear. You can see, you know, a lot of different size fish, not always big fish in the clear water. But I wish that I had a polling platform on my drift boat so I could oh, get yeah. higher. But I do spend a lot of time standing and rowing so that I can see a little bit better until your eyes are truly adjusted to like looking and seeing these fish. Like, I mean, I've, I've had thousands of times where I'm like, you see that fish right there? And my client looks at it and I'm like, no. And I'm like, <laughs> It's the only dark spot on this little gravel bottom. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but, um, you know, they're looking in the same spot I am. But smallmouth have black tails. And so sometimes I'm just looking for that black tail or a shadow that's, you know, slightly oh, yeah. 
you know, because they're not sitting totally on the bottom. So if it's a sunny day, you can see that shadow sometimes from those fish, even if you can't really truly see the fish. Yeah, I gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. And so when you're on the boat floating down, you see a fish, are you kind of, uh, kind of anchoring up, trying to hit it as you go or does it vary? I like to hit them as I go because any noise or service disturbance can be a problem. And I mean, there's a lot of times where I won't even touch the oars, you know, and sometimes that creates a problem because you've got to go quick, but I try not to make any noise if I can see them. I mean, I'll slow down a little bit if they're far enough away, but again, if you're floating, if, if you're crayfishing, I might drop if it's a certain situation. But when you're popper fishing or, you know, surface fishing in general, typically you're going to get a better presentation if you can keep the boat moving at the same speed as that topwater buck. So I try not to drop anchor when I'm doing that. And it's going to give us a better chance of getting that fish. That makes sense. Yep. That's it. And then you mentioned before, well, you talked, I guess, what, what is the typical length? Is 16 feet a typical leader length or what would be your typical? No, um, that would be an extreme long one. If I'm streamer fishing, I like my leaders to be between six and eight feet. You know, I should say if I'm bait fishing or swim fly fishing, I'm six to eight feet. If I'm cray fishing, 10 to 12 feet. If I'm dry fly fishing, probably about that 10 to 12 foot as well. Just depends on the on the conditions, I have fished 16 foot leaders for bass before when it's low and clear. So I would say streamers in the sense of swim flies with an intermediate line, I'm running six to eight feet. And if I'm running a floating line with a crayfish or a popper, it's going to be in that 10 to 12 foot range. Okay. And then when you're casting that, how are you, any tips on the casting? It sounds like maybe you got some weight, a heavy, big fly with a longer leader. Is that a challenge? How do you get somebody who's kind of struggling with the casting a little bit to get get it out there and then you have the accuracy right you got to get it within a pie plate or right or something like that yeah um i mean so with crayfish stuff when i'm telling people i'm like look don't worry about how tight your loop is don't worry about what it looks like just get it out there um and a lot of times i tell people to open their loop up because that crayfish is going to fall if you don't have enough momentum with that fly line and so you're gonna end up with way more snags if you're trying to get a perfect loop and so I tell people, you know, use your thumb because everybody, well, most people put their thumb on the top of the cork. I say use that thumb as your as your pointer, right? Wherever that thumb goes is where that fly is going to go. So even if you're casting and you're opening your loop up and you're just kind of like almost chucking and ducking, as long as you put that thumb exactly where you want it to be and you don't waver that that casting stroke, it's still going to get there. It might just be a wide open loop and just flop down. So, you know, when it comes to the, the crayfish game, I tell people to just throw all, you know. Yeah. Don't let uh, perfection get in the way of progress, yeah. right? Or whatever it is. Yeah. The more perfect you are, the worse it's going to be, actually. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, and on the loop, how do you, you know, how do you create the bigger loop? Like, that? what is that? Is that just more of a, uh, using more of your arm or how would you do that? Like, if somebody's trying so, to, yeah. You're trying to keep your cast exactly the way, you know, you're, you're bending at your elbow and you're following you know, following through with your, with your wrist, but like, you know, lefty said, like used to say at the very end of your cast, give it a little bit of a wrist flick. You like you're, you know, hammering a nail. But what I tell people to do is as you're going forward, as long as you keep it in the same motion, you don't want to separate that, you know, you don't want to bend your elbow and your wrist out of sync, but if you can bend your wrist and your elbow at the same time and kind of follow that as you run, you're going to open that loop up a lot more instead of kind of just moving it at the elbow and doing a quick little wrist flick. So, you know, you're basically just widening your form of your cast a little bit, but still keeping it all in sync. Hmm. Gotcha. This is cool. 
Nice. This is awesome. I think uh, we've really covered um, a ton of stuff today. Um, talk about this. I'm interested in the steelhead because we have a lot of steelhead. I'm going to be heading near your your neck of the woods. We'll probably be hitting. Well, we're we're going to hit New York and uh, and kind of uh, you know the Ohio stuff. But um, talk about that steelhead catching a steelhead there at Lake Erie on those trips versus catching a big uh, bass. Which one's harder to do? <laughs> well. <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. I think bass, big bass are harder for sure. Um, if you know how to catch a steelhead, I mean, I've seen a lot of guys, you know, I'll just use some of the Erie trips, you know, as an example, I do fish Ohio and New York as well. And I love swinging flies for steelhead, but when it comes to guiding, a lot of times you're just trying to put fish in the net. So you are bobber fishing a lot, but I've seen so many people in these creeks that are no more than two feet deep or three feet deep that have six feet or eight feet between their indicator and their fly and they're like man it's a tough day and i'm like well yeah because you can't feel that you can't that fish isn't going to hold on to your you know fly for 10 seconds while your thing gets close but i think if you can find steelhead and you can present properly to a steelhead i think steelhead definitely eat a little bit a little bit easier um i personally love i love steelhead i mean when i was guiding in alaska i got to you know do the swinging and stripping for wild pacific northwest steelhead and mm. i've done most of the great lakes stuff and i've done some some washington stuff as well and which nice. is super fun but you know erie's close and it's fun and those fish are big and you're running you know 10 foot six weights with six and eight pound tippets so that creates a problem in its own or challenge in its own but you know you, we do a lot of dry dropper fishing in erie which is super fun i mean that's one of my favorite ways to trout fish so it's kind of very similar to to trout and then of course you know swinging flies when the conditions are right is is wicked awesome and and i think what makes erie you know ohio pa and new york erie a great swinging system is that there are so many bait fish in the lake and in the in the creeks and rivers themselves that those steelhead eat minnows just as much as they eat eggs and nymphs so I think that you can have just as good of a day if you got good conditions swinging flies as you were if you were fishing a bead and a nymph. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's been the cool thing for us because we, you know, we've been heading up there. Um, you know, Jeff Liskay's kind of been helping lead our, you know, our adventures, and uh, yeah, he taught me a bunch of things that I and I fished for steelhead many years, but those really short tippets, like literally like sixteen inches, you know, just a, yeah, or leader. I mean, literally these short, super short, and that's the thing, keeping control, just like you said, because. If you don't have control on where your fly is, you're not going to be feeling the fish, right? And so, exactly, and that's swinging, and that's the same. So, I, th- I think it's really been awesome. I think the Great Lakes has a crazy cool, you know, steelhead resource, and um, we're excited to get back up there um, this year. Well, let's take it out um, here, Jake, and we're going to do our little um, fly shop shout out segment. And this is uh, today. This is presented by Smitty's Fly Box, who has a bunch of great fly patterns. Smitty's uh, Flybox.com. I want to just give a shout out to a fly shop. I always love doing this because we know that's kind of the backbone of, you know, part of the industry, fly fishing. Who would be your local shop where you're at? Do you have a, a one or two that are out there? Uh, TCO Fly Shop. Oh, yeah. TCO. Yep. Yeah, that's our local shop. I used to manage one of their shops and, you know, our guide service works directly with them. So oh, they nice. are kind of the heart and soul of this area. Um, and really eastern to central pennsylvania generally have four locations so oh, okay that's what it is so they have four locations in kind of um is that in pennsylvania or multiple states yeah all all in pennsylvania so they got one in state college one in bowling springs pa one in Reading, pa and one in Brenmar, pennsylvania yeah okay good good and 
Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, TCO, obviously, they're huge. You definitely hear about them around around the country. I think there's lots of great fly shops. What, and then you guys, so that's cool. So your operation, which your guiding operation, maybe talk about that a little bit. If somebody wanted to connect with you and get a trip, do they book through TCO or how would they do that? Uh, they can book through both, you know, directly through me or TCO. So Relentless Fly Fishing is basically TCO's contract guide service as well as an independent guide service. Oh, nice. So. Well, we're really not independent. Everything we do runs through TCO, but you can book through any one of the guides and it will still kind of go through us slash TCO. We don't manage the state college area. We just do Redding, Bren Mawr, and Bowling Springs currently. But if you were to call the fly shop, you would end up talking to me or Ashley. He's the manager in Bowling Springs and he would set you up with one of my guides or contact me directly and and we can work on that as well. So Perfect. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do our quick little rapid fire and then we'll take it out of here real quick here. Um, you mentioned boats. So what, what's your boat of choice you use there? I know there's a ton of great drift boats out there. Uh, I have a Clacka Headhunter too. That's my favorite. It's the skiff, not the kind of teardrop. Um, I love that boat. I think it maneuvers super well, drafts very little water and, you know, it's just a very comfortable boat to be in. And then, um, I fish a lot of NRS rafts um, in the spring. So yeah, perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Those are two great companies. Nice. Um, and tell us, uh, let's, we've done a ton of tips today, but give us one little quick, big uh, bass tip. Somebody's on the water, they're out there today, maybe they're struggling to find a fish. What do you tell somebody to maybe find, get that first fish? Go low and slow. Oh, yeah, low and slow. Keep it easy and keep it direct. Right. So can you go too slow? Yes. And that's when you catch a rock. That, right, right. Okay. So you got to keep it, yes, moving a little bit. But in the grand scheme of things, no, you can't, you can't really go too slow. You can definitely go too fast, but you can't. You know, there is a fine line between too slow, but I'd rather you go too slow and get stuck on the bottom than go too fast and not be around those fish. Gotcha. And for glasses, polarized glasses, does it matter the type of lens, the color, anything like that, or is just get an amber or whatever? I think amber is really important, but, you know, I like the mirror stuff. So I have green mirror and I have um, that like silver sunrise by Costa, their, their low light one. I think between those two, you can pretty much be good in any condition that you're looking for. And, and in all honesty, sometimes even in the brightest days, I like to use the low light ones because it just seems to make everything a little bit brighter without hurting your eyesight. Mm, perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, we definitely love Costa. Uh, they've got some good stuff going on the, um, you know, conservation and everything as well. So let's take it out. Let's finish this one with the, uh, that you mentioned earlier on, the falling out of the boat. So uh, you want to leave us with that story as we take it out here today? <laughs> sure. Um, so I was, uh, probably only my second year at working for TCO and a buddy of mine got married the night before and I'll leave out all of the major details except <laughs> for the fact that I was pretty hungover at this point in the day and I dropped the anchor, didn't realize that it didn't hold and it, my boat kind of drifted down from about a foot of water to about six feet of water. And so I stepped out of the boat, like I was stepping out of you know, into a foot and oh, there was man. no bottom and I face planted straight out of my boat. <laughs> Damn. I, everybody, there were people to watch this happen. No, well, my two clients were the only two and they were like, you didn't notice that it we slid? And I'm like, nope, but I definitely <laughs> realized where we are now. <laughs> nice. So you went for a dip. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, they they were great guys. They fished me pretty much for about 10 years and then they stopped fishing once COVID hit because they were getting older, but oh yeah, um, they loved fishing with me. So I didn't, didn't ruin the experience by any means. Good, good, good. Well, I guess the reminder there is like you said, to be, get plenty of rest the night before the big trip, right? Don't party it up all night. Exactly. Good. All right. Well, anything else, Jake, before we get out of here, you want to just leave people with as we're thinking about smallmouth bass, steelhead, whatever you have going? 
Uh, not really. Otherwise, you know, other than just, you know, if you need to get in touch with me, best is email relentlessflyfishing at gmail or website is uh, www.relentlessflyfishing.com. That's pretty much the two easiest ways to get in touch with me. Amazing, Jake. All right. We'll send everybody out there and put links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the time today. Um, you know, you definitely have a, a, a massive uh, amount of information here. So I, I'm sure people will be connecting with you as we move forward. So uh, yeah, thanks again for all your time today. You got it, man. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.